to Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to be in verses 14 through 21. And as you're flipping there, I'm going to give you a, a little bit of a, of a, I don't know, place you can hang your hat on where we are in this series, because we've been in Ephesians, these first three chapters, for a few months now, and uh, we're about to make a big transition, and that'll, be, that'll come in chapter 4. So I want to just to briefly, as you're turning to chap, uh, chapter 3, remember the beginning of Ephesians, we start with this amazing prayer from Paul, this big blessing over what God has done through Jesus Christ for the Ephesians. And there's these wonderful passages there about the depth and riches of God's mercy and grace. And then in chapter 2, he kind of hits the Ephesians with, but you were also dead in your trespasses and sin. You also once were sons of disobedience and wrath, but God, being rich in mercy, saved you. And so he's speaking to the individual Ephesians, Jew and Gentiles gathered there, that remember what you were and now who you are because of Christ. And then they, he puts together these pieces of, and not only are you reconciled to God the Father through Christ, you are also reconciled to one another. That's kind of the end of chapter 2, where he's talking about Jews and Gentiles coming together, being built into this glorious temple that the Holy Spirit now resides in. Uh, it's this wonderful passage about what the gospel does to these horizontal relationships we have with one another. And then in three, he goes back into a prayer, and he, he digressed, and we went through that, where he kind of talks about what he does as a minister and what the church is supposed to do. And now he's getting to the, back to the prayer, and he's concluding it. But I want you to hear everything that has come before this has been grace, has been mercy, has been reminding you of what God has done for you. And it's important to remember that because in chapters 4 through 6, he's going to shift and start saying, here's how we respond to grace. We're going to be hearing more imperatives, more commands of how we are supposed to now wor walk worthily in a manner to, to reflect all this grace we've received. He's going to start talking about how husbands are supposed to love their wives, how wives are supposed to respect their husbands, how children and parents should love and govern one another, how work relationships, all these things are going to be imperatives. They're going to be commands, but grace came first. It's laid hold of our hearts. Everything that we're about to come, the next several uh, months are probably going to be geared towards what we're doing in response to the gospel, but I don't want to hear this isn't what we're doing to earn God's favor. It's already been poured out on us. We already have as much as, it was, as we will ever need but now we're learning what it's like to respond. And, and Paul beautifully shifts towards that. If you remember, I kind of gave a title for this series as Ephesians is Truth That Sings. This is, I forget what the musical term is, Whitney and Amanda can tell me later, but it is, it is the changing of the movements in the symphony that is Ephesians. And it's done so majestically right here. So turn now your attention to the reading of God's word in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21, Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, 
that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have always condescended to dwell with your people. We thank you for your presence here this morning. We ask that you would accept our worship as, a, as an offering, not of blood, but of contrite hearts. May we hear, see, and taste grace this Sabbath morning and receive the blessings of being united with your Son, reconciled to you, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I am a child of the 90s, and if you know anything about that great decade of the 90s, there is one basketball team that reigns supreme. It's the Chicago Bulls. It was one of the most winningest franchises in uh, major league history. I mean, they won six national champions, uh, championships during that time. And of course, if you're, if you're thinking about the Chicago Bulls, you immediately go to Michael Jordan, who is the greatest basketball player of all time. I will hear no other names of LeBron or Stephen Curry or any of this. They all remain to be seen. Uh, and I've, there's a documentary that came out not too long ago about Michael Jordan and about the Chicago Bulls called The Last Dance. And I remember watching them and everybody wanted to be MJ. Uh, but I gave a lot of credit in this documentary as it's in the very beginning episode. It's talking all about Michael Jordan and who he is and where he came from. But he said Michael Jordan wouldn't have been Michael Jordan. The Chicago Bulls wouldn't have been the Chicago Bulls without Scottie Pippen, without uh, Derek, uh, what was his name? Rodman. Without all these other uh, teammates of his. And so then it goes on to talk about these teammates. And I grew up, I, I loved Scottie Pippen. I mean, to see him and Michael Jordan w play together was just, it was unreal. Uh, but I didn't know until this documentary some interesting things about Scottie Pippen, because he is like the exact opposite of Michael Jordan was, right? It, for college, especially. I mean, Jordan, once he hits North Carolina, it's all him. Everyone's raving about him. But Scottie Pippen, he didn't even get a scholarship to play college ball. In fact, he was an okay, mediocre 6'1 when he was a walk-on at Central Arkansas University. I mean, he was a walk-on. So what happened, though, because he walked on in college, but by the time he's done with college, he is in the first round, fifth pick to the NBA. What happened? I mean, obviously he's skilled, but what, what was the big difference? Big difference is that some boys hit a growth spurt in college. And while he came into college as a mediocre 6'1", he left a very respectable 6'8", power point guard. I mean, that's a, that's a big guy running at you. And he could shoot, and he could rebound, and he could assist. He had all the right skills. What he lacked was kind of this power, this growth to be able to dominate the court. Well, he got it in college, a little later than probably everybody, all of his teammates who were already done growing. He didn't just have the skills, he now had this power.
power. And, and while it's you know, DNA and biology and everything, he, he needed that growth, but Pippin didn't ask for it, right? It happened to him. Now, if we want to know how to grow spiritually, which is what this prayer is about. I mean, it, I, I'm, I'm doing this whole paragraph, but just to... Martin Lloyd-Jones preached like 10 sermons on just this little paragraph because it is so rich and there's so much that you could pull and tease at. But, but the big picture is this is a prayer for spiritual growth. And, and what's important about that, and whatever you might think about is once I've said that, as, as you were reading through this, there's very little, and this is kind of what I was talking about in the introduction, there's very little emphasis here yet on what we are supposed to do. There's a whole lot of emphasis on what God is doing for you, for your spiritual growth. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. How, if we want to grow spiritually, how, what is Paul praying over the Ephesians that is true for us as well if we want to grow spiritually? So the first thing I I draw your attention to is that if we want to grow spiritually, we need the Holy Spirit. Verses 14 through 16 read, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that we are after. And if we want the Spirit, what's Paul modeling here for us? Pray. He is praying for the Ephesians, but notice it's not uh, praying as if they're not in the room. I mean, he is explicit. He says in verse 16 that he may grant you to be strengthened. He's drawing the Ephesians' attention. I want you to listen to how I am praying for you so that you will know what to pray for yourself. Pray for the Spirit. You're going to need him to get this spiritual growth thing done. And so maybe you're familiar with the phrase, you know, or the question that you may get asked by other well-intentioned Christians, but are you spirit-filled? I remember being uh, at a friend's camp uh, or farm property in college, and I went to a Pentecostal college, and his family, uh, we were gathered around the fire, and his mom was grilling me for some reason. She asked me if I was a Christian, which took slight offense to I was at a Christian college after all. We're all Christian. Uh, and so then she followed it up with, well, are you spirit-filled? And even though I was raised Pentecostal, it just seemed an odd question. Well, of course I'm spirit-filled. And in fact, earlier in Ephesians, Paul says that, he reminds us that we, we are sealed with the Spirit. It's when we believe in Christ, when, when our hearts have been changed, that we, we receive the Spirit, that it's the sign and seal of our faith, and it's the inheritance, it's, it's the down payment for what's coming in glory. And so Paul's beginning this prayer of spiritual growth with saying, you need the Holy Spirit. Everything else that's about to follow it cannot happen unless you have the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Richard Baxter, one of the great Puritans, said, the Holy Spirit, it's like a spring to all your spiritual motions. It's as the wind to your sails. You can do nothing without it. But what does the Spirit do for us? Well, he does lots of things. I mean, he is multi faceted member of the Trinity, right? The Spirit is our teacher. That's what Jesus tells us in John 14, that he is going to teach us what to do and believe. 
The Spirit convicts the world, Jesus says also in John's Gospel. It's going to convict the world, and this is a good thing because it is the entire emphasis for missions, right? We pray that as we send missionaries out that God's Spirit goes before them. God's Spirit is the one that stirs hearts. This is why when you read in the book of Acts, the preaching of God's Word, Luke often says, as many as were appointed to believe, confessed and believed. The Spirit will go out into the world convicting those who do not yet believe of their sin so that they can then believe in the Lord. The Spirit dwells in believers. We are, we've seen this in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians. Paul talks about that, that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is now where the Spirit of God dwells. The Spirit is a source of revelation and wisdom. If you remember back earlier in this prayer, in verses 3 and 6, uh, Paul is talking about this knowledge that he has. The mystery of the gospel was given to him by revelation through the Spirit. It gives us wisdom, he writes to the Corinthians, how to discern situations, how to discern how we are to live in the world. But what he's praying here, and what is important for spiritual growth, is the Spirit gives us power. We will be strengthened with power through his Spirit in our inner beings, right down into the core of who we are. When Paul's talking in Romans 7 about his, the, the struggle between his inner self and, it, and his sinfulness, I mean, he is talking about a struggle of the heart. And the way that our hearts are changed and are made to be obedient to the gospel is that the Spirit strengthen us, strengthens us in our inner being. I mean, if you remember, I don't, I don't even know if they make these commercials anymore, which is a travesty, but do you remember the Energizer Bunny commercials? The bunnies, you know, banging the drum, banging the drum, and then all of a sudden it slows down, and you know, the plug is you got to put the new battery, and it jolts back to life, and it's pounding away even better than before, and marching off. That, that is what you need in the Spirit. He is our spiritual—this is a terrible metaphor—he is our spiritual battery to help us continue to beat the drum of obedience and living out the gospel. So if we are going to grow spiritually, the first thing we need, Paul is praying for us, is the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit gives us something, because he's always the giver of gifts, right? So the Holy Spirit gives us something that if we want to grow spiritually, then we need Christ. If we have this Spirit in our inner being, then in verse 17 he tells us that we have, so that he gives it to the Spirit to us so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ is our gift of salvation. He is our Redeemer. What the Spirit is doing is he's applying the work of Christ to our hearts. It's giving us saving faith. The divines who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith put it this way, the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. I mean, this is, this is huge. If Christ dwells in our hearts, and the fullness of the deity dwells in Christ, like Paul writes to the Colossians, then the fullness of the triune God dwells with us. And this is what he is, God always promises his people. He promises his presence. There's a reason our story begins in a garden. The Lord, in his divine wisdom, makes a place for us. 
for us to survive, for us to be able to eat, breathe, bathe. And that was a gift, but the true gift is he walks in the garden with Adam. It was his presence. And the temple that's created centuries later is to reflect that garden of Eden. And the most important thing is presence, that God is present with his people. And so a profound truth then is here for us if we want to grow spiritually is, is that we, we need Christ. And that if we have them, it's because of the Spirit. So whoever then has the Spirit has Christ. And whoever has the Spirit and Christ has access to the Father. This is what the Spirit gives our hearts. In our inner beings, it's Jesus Christ. And we see then that Christ is at work in our hearts. In verse 17, we're told that so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now, this language is you know, metaphorical and powerful, but the, we're going to break down some of the words here. What is, it, what is it Paul talking about being rooted and grounded? Now, we know he likes building metaphors because we've already seen him talking about building a church and a temple and Christ being the cornerstone. But the word here for rooted, I'm going to bring in a divine and deep mystery. It just means rooted. It is a horticultural term for planting, for something that could take root or is intentionally planted, or even as a plant grows and its roots grow down. That, that, that's what it means, but it's not really used at all in the New Testament. And the word grounded is just an architectural term. It refers to the laying of a foundation. But what I did find interesting is that it's not used a ton either in Scripture, and it's different from where Paul uses it already earlier in Ephesians but it is the same exact word Jesus uses in his parable about the man that builds his house on the rock versus the man that builds his house in the sand. Why does the man on the rock's house stand? It's because it's founded on the rock. It, he chose the smart place to lay his foundation. Paul is encouraging and instructing the Ephesians that if Christ is dwelling in your hearts through faith, there's a purpose for it so that you will are being rooted and grounded in love. Christ is at work in your heart, and he's making you as if he's taking a plant and get, transplanting it and taking it, making it so that it can grow even deeper roots that'll be even healthier. Or if, he, if he's making you into a building or a structure, he's laying you on the rock, the perfect foundation. He is laying down a great work in your life, and it's also got a purpose. This rooting and grounding is for what? love. And this isn't God's love towards us. It's actually not Christ's love towards us. We're being rooted and grounded in love. It's referring to our love, the love that's going to be growing out of us. That's why one of the fruits of the spirits is, actually it's the first fruit, love. The way believers grow is using the good soil, the best foundation so this is referring to our sanctification. It's telling us what's going to happen. If we're going to be rooted and grounded in love, well, what is this love towards them? What is its end purpose? Jesus told us, love God and love your neighbor. It's grace. It's truth. When we think of spiritual growth, we might think of lots of gifts or experiences or all these things. All that is good. But remember what Paul told the Corinthians if I have prophetic powers and I understand all the mysteries and have all knowledge and I have all the faith so that I could remove mountains, 
but I have not love. I am nothing. We can't be all mind and get all the doctrinal checkpoints marked and be absolutely precise in all, all our language. And we can't just be serving and caring and giving up everything and taking care of all of needs without being right theologically, right in our hearts, understanding the God. We need to be together. The Christian gospel doesn't separate that. It combines it in love. Love God, which is right belief. Love neighbor, which is right praxis. Now, you might say, though, this is great. Spiritual growth, I know I'm supposed to do it. I'm not sure how it happens, but you also don't know that I'm terrible at it. I don't feel like I'm growing in these mysteries of the gospel. I don't feel like I'm growing in love for God or definitely my neighbor who I'm struggling to love. So maybe this illustration might help about something that we, we, could, we often feel pressure to do. There's a, a tree called an argon tree. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's native to Morocco, which is a semi-desert uh, region. The, the argon tree survives by stretching its roots so deep into the ground, going way, way down until it finds water. And then it pulls the water up and it, and it can survive for a very, very long time. Now, as impressive as that is, it's not nearly as impressive as how long it takes to bear fruit. In order for uh, it to develop fruit, which is suitable for, uh, to, to harvest, it takes 50 years. 50 years until you can take the fruit of this tree and use it, which lots of people use for lots of things. It is incredibly rich in vitamin E. People use it for skin care. In the Mediterranean, they'll put it into hummus and, and couscous and other uh, uh, dishes because it's so nutritious. And that's what we need to remember here. Paul, it does anywhere here, Paul pray, and it happens now. Spiritual growth happens right this second. No, it's, it's a long process. One of the things that is true of the gospel is it will change you. And some things you'll see changed immediately. Some things you won't. Uh, one of my favorite uh, illustrations of that, too, is John Newton. You know, the, when he was still a slave-trading captain on a boat, he was having all these you know, uh, re- repulsions to the way he used to live. And one of those things was his beginning to understand how wrong the slave trade was and his participation in it. But one of the things that was really hard for him to kick was cussing. And he, he, has, he had these prayers and journal entries and letters of him saying, what, I really want to stop cussing. It took him a little while. But I know other men who were like, I dropped that like a bad habit once I got saved. Never struggled with it, but I had other issues. Spiritual growth is not a one-and-done deal. It is not a microwavable meal. It's a slow cooker meal. And so to not lose heart, these, we are supposed to be praying for this and being like argon trees. It may take us years to produce fruit, but when it's, when it's ripened in God's time, it will be delicious. It will be nutritious. And like we're called to do, it will benefit others. It won't just be love of God. It will be love of our neighbor. So if we want to grow spiritually, we know we need the Holy Spirit who gives us Christ, who is making us rooted in love to God and to our neighbor. But we also, if we're going to grow, we need comprehension. So here's what he says in verses 18 through 19, right? 
may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It is impossible to comprehend without being strengthened by the Spirit in our inner man. It is without, impossible without the indwelling of Christ in our hearts. It's impossible to fully comprehend God without being rooted and grounded in love. So what Paul is praying here and saying is that you cannot comprehend the gospel without all of this that I've been praying for you, without the Spirit, without Christ in your hearts, without growing in being rooted and grounded, all of these things. If you don't have that, then you are actually missing out. You don't get the gospel. And so he's showing us that the true comprehension of God, true knowledge of Christ, it's beyond just mental assent of propositional truth. It has to take rooting and grounding in your hearts in love. And you can see this in a number of ways. One of the ways that I've seen it firsthand is in the academy while I was studying uh, the Old Testament and studying biblical studies. There are two big-name academics. One was named John Dominic Crossan, who was a former uh, Catholic monk who decided he wanted to get married, so he left in the 60s to marry a gal from Ireland. But he was also a world-famous New Testament scholar. But John Dominic Crossan knows Jesus. He knows Jesus of Nazareth, the historical Jewish peasant who roamed around Herod's Palestine. He can tell you all these things details and dates and and cultural and religious things about the time of Jesus. But if you ask him to tell you who Jesus is, he will only give you that. He won't give you the Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. He has no knowledge of that. He doesn't think it happened. doesn't think it's real. The other is Bart Ehrman, very similarly. Bart Ehrman went to Moody Bible College, then went to Wheaton, then went on to Princeton, and he is an agnostic. He is one of the foremost scholars in Greek and New Testament uh, in the United States today, and he is just eh, ambivalent about Jesus. Any of the, the things that the Bible and the, whole, the Gospels confess about Jesus being the Son of God, that was just a belief they had. But we can't really know. that They're missing an important aspect, the comprehension of the gospel. It's not rooted and grounded in their hearts, so they can only tell you about Jesus up to a certain point. And this is a dangerous place to be in. James actually warns believers that, you know, okay, so you believe that God is one? Great, good for you. So do demons. You can have an accurate knowledge of who Jesus was as a historical person, which is important because he's fully man. He did walk around, you know, ancient Galilee. He walked across the Sea of Galilee. He was, he's a true person in space and time. But if that's all you know, and you don't have the part of his, of John 1, of him being the Word who was with God and was God and came and dwelt among us, you have an incomplete Jesus, and you cannot comprehend the gospel. That is a dangerous place to be. So if we are going to grow spiritually, we can't, we have to have the full gospel. We have to comprehend all of that and hold all of it together. The foundation can be laid in your head, that's right, good and good doctrine, but it needs tender care, being rooted and grounded in love towards Christ. 
And it is true love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, Paul said. Our subject, the person that we're studying, he's infinite. And so how can we even begin to comprehend him properly? Well, Paul said by being part of his people, that we can comprehend him with all the saints. We will figure this out in community as we give and receive love, as we give and receive knowledge. It is so deep because it reflects and enacts the love the Father has shown us in Christ and has been applied to us, to our lives, through the Spirit. This comes in to where I talk about the hymn. Because Isaac Watts wrote this beautiful hymn of the wondrous cross that we sang together not too long ago. He said, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. This gospel demands your all, but it will also give you the all of the saints that you're gathered with. It will give you all of Christ because he gave it all to you on the cross. It will give you all of the Spirit who is going to empower you and keep pushing you towards all of these goals until we arrive at this culminating point. And that's found in verse 19, that if we want all this, if we want to grow spiritually, we need to be full of God. Paul wrote, all of this that has, I've already, we've been discussing is to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does that mean? All the fullness of God? There's a couple of different ways to take it, and they're all pretty close together, but are we full of God, or is it describing the fullness of God, as he's, Paul said earlier, you know, the fullness of God who fills all in all. Well, in the end, the differences really are minor. However, the majority of commentators and the context of this whole part of the letter led me to think that this is referring to the fullness of God, uh, the fullness which is God. John Chrysostom put it this way, the fullness of God is that excellence of which God himself is full. Are we clear as mud? That's a tall order. We are to be full of God, as full of God as God is full of God. God doesn't need a confession of sin like we do every Sunday. God didn't need the work of his son like we need the work of his son. God doesn't need the power of his spirit like we need. The power we're supposed to have and be the fullness of God. And Charles Hodge, one of the great American Presbyterians, He doesn't back down from this point. He goes even further. He makes a connection here in the language to Jesus' summons to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, which is just Jesus taking from Leviticus where it says, be holy as God is holy. That is the standard, Hodge says. It's absolute perfection. I'm not perfect. I yelled at my youngest daughter before coming to church this morning. I'm sure you all can think of an instance in the past week where you are not perfect. So is God setting us up for absolute failure? Can we be, how, how are we supposed to be full of God? Well, we can take hope that he actually promises this for us. We're, again, this is not us just doing it on our own. We're strengthened by the Spirit. We have Christ dwelling in our hearts. We're being rooted and grounded. We're growing in love of God and neighbor. And 
the end goal of all of this, what is called the golden chain of our salvation from Romans 8, 29, and 30, is glory. Again, this is not going to happen instantly. We are going to be continually filled up with God until the end. But we are called to be different. We are called to be, at times, separate. We are called to be mindful of what we're consuming. Are we consuming things of godliness? Or are we consuming things that are not godly? And, and they don't even have to be wrong, right? So you could think about it this way. Most of us have access to streaming services now and unlimited amounts of television. And it's so easy, so comfortable to say, I'm going to watch one 30-minute show. And all of a sudden, you've watched an entire season in half a night. But while that's a good thing, it takes away from time spent doing other things. You could have read Ephesians several times in that same span. You could have prayed. You could have invested in your spouse or in your children. You could have gone and visited someone that you know that is sick or struggling or just lonely. Our time is not our own. Let's fill it with things of godliness and not things of selfishness, not things and cares of this world that we don't take to glory. That, that, that wasting time is not part of heaven's schedule. So we can ask ourselves, what am I filling myself up with? And this is how Paul concludes all of this, the spiritual growth that he is summoning and praying over us. Here is the gospel in sanctification. And this is the, the doxology that we've been saying, or the benediction and doxology that we've been saying the past few weeks. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You're not alone in growing spiritually. There is a power at work in you. And you're even covered because him, he's, he's going to do it who's far more abundantly able to do it than anything that we could ask or think. There are going to be things that we're not even going to be asking for that Christ will grow you in. There are going to be things we're not even aware of or to be thinking about, and the Spirit will lead you there. He has got you. This is not just you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, doing all the right rules. It is being nurtured and growing so that you love and obey, or you obey in response to love, that you obey because you love Christ and your neighbor. I'll conclude with this. All of us at some point need to grow up, right? We've all heard that. Like at some point, an exasperated parent has said it to you, a coach, a teacher. And, you know, sometimes it can be real shame-inducing. Like you're already aware that you kind of screwed up or you're struggling with something, and now this person's just piling it on. Like, you just need to grow up. But other times... It can be a kick. It can be a good reminder that there is something for you to mature into. And, and Paul and Scripture is full of this. Paul talks about maturing into a manhood, and re which really is just maturing in the faith. Jesus talks about being perfect as his Father in heaven is perfect, but Jesus doesn't leave us alone. He gives us the Spirit who's supposed to teach us, convict us, and comfort us. He won't leave you either, in your growth. So before you pass from this glory to the next glory, you will go from six foot one to six foot eight like Pippin. It just may take a few years. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you that you have given us uh, your word today, that we can be hopefully encouraged and convicted that you're at work in our lives. Maybe, may we be aware of it. May we desire it, Lord. May we want to grow in the knowledge that surpasses all other knowledges, the love of Christ. May we grow in the love of God and our neighbor. May we grow to be full, mature Christians who are sanctified, who are aware of their sins, who are combating them, and who are daily following your son, Jesus. Lord, we're thankful for your table that you've put together for us this morning because we, we need strength to grow spiritually. And one of the ways we receive it is by participating and celebrating the Lord's Supper. So be with us as we go to the table and as we depart from this sanctuary today. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.